This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. For today, this is sort of the last holiday episode for this year, and I have a stack of missing persons cases that you have so dutifully put together that I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm going to go through those, and then I have an exoneration case as well. We're going to start with a missing person that you won't find in Charlie Project. Uh, it's a 2019 case. She goes in in February of 2020. Uh, February 21st of 2020. So just, you know, about two months after she goes missing, she's out of Albany, Oregon, which is Lynn County. And Lynn County is, you know, noticeably difficult to, to get information from. Her MP number in NamUs is 65569. And she's 37 years old when she goes missing on Christmas 2019. She's five feet, five inches tall. And she weighs around 115 pounds. Uh, she had sh- a shoulder-length hair that's described as blonde, uh, strawberry blonde. She wears black glasses and she has blue eyes. Uh, she has a lot of tattoos and a couple of scars that they have. They've put some of this up on the NamUs profile. Unfortunately, this case is uh, has a different outcome than a lot of the cases that we've talked about. And, well, this is Tiffany Marie uh, Lazon, L-A-Z-O-N. Why I say this has a different outcome is because a lot of people could have seen this one coming, including uh, Tiffany. In March of 2015, a criminal case kicks off, and it sort of wraps up in December of 2015. You can read about this on KBAL.com, which is CBS 13 in uh, Oregon area. There's no name on it, just a staff listing on this article. Here's, uh, here's how this goes in 2015 for this 2019 Christmas missing persons case. Uh, the headline is Albany man cleared of attempted murder and rape charges, Albany, Oregon. A judge threw out most of the charges against the man accused of attempted murder after determining that the victim was not a credible witness in the case. Back in March of 2015, 
Police arrested Craig Lazone Jr. after they said he threatened to kill his wife, Tiffany. Lazone's wife told police that he was going to dump her body in the local river. At a hearing Tuesday, the judge determined that Tiffany Lazone was not a credible source in the case. As a result, the judge threw out charges of attempted murder, rape, and strangulation. Now, Craig Lazone was convicted of tampering with a witness due to the fact that he called Tiffany from jail. And Craig's father, Craig Sr., said he was very pleased with the outcome. He said, all my son is guilty of is hurting himself, nothing else. He would never do anything like that. We're just happy he's not serving a lifetime in prison. Tiffany Lazone gave a statement in the courtroom in which she claimed she was suffering from PTSD after her military service. She pleaded for the judge to not keep her husband in prison. Craig Lazone will serve up to a total of three years, including the nine months that he's already served. I'm glad to go through all of the articles about what happened and why this is a missing persons case on Christmas 2019, but I think from the article that I just read to you, that pretty much sums it up. What do you think about that? Well, I think that uh, sadly, that whole situation there where Tiffany was found not to be credible, it does sound like she was also suffering from uh, some pretty serious, like how she begged the judge not to put her husband in jail. She was traumatized and not thinking clearly. But, uh, you know, he was, uh, the charges were dismissed, and I feel like that was very empowering for him. Yeah. Because not only, like, is it very, very likely he had done everything he had been accused of or, you know, something similar to it, he learned that he was going to get away with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this isn't the only case that that happens in, but this is the one that we have in front of us as a really good example. And there's no telling, really how much, you know, torment, I guess, that they would have put each other through, even though Tiffany is ultimately the victim here. There's a lot of toxicity kind of oozing out of that situation just from that little blurb, right, from that uh, encounter that happened for like four years earlier, right? Yeah. On January the 8th, uh, Tiffany's family asked officers to conduct a welfare check at her home in Albany, Oregon. So Albany police go to her home. Uh, Family said they hadn't heard from her since Christmas Day. Now, according to all the police reports I could dig up on this case, Tiffany Lizone had said she was estranged from her husband. The police interview him on January the 9th. Craig says he didn't know where his wife was. He told officers that she'd been planning to make a move to Washington. On January 14th, police arrested Lizone on charges of animal neglect and abandonment, and that's related to Tiffany's pet cat. So the cat gets picked up and turned over to Tiffany's daughter. Family members told the Albany police they were worried about Tiffany's disappearance, saying it was unlikely she was going to leave Albany without her car, without her pet cat, and without her phone. And as I previously just said, Craig Lazone had been convicted of assaulting his wife before. He was accused of attempting to kill her between February and March of 2015. In that case, he was charged with nine counts related to domestic violence and he had a no contact order filed against them when those charges were filed. But those are the charges that I just referenced as being dismissed. 
Craig Lazone's attorney was a guy named Arnold Poole, and he was responsible for poking a lot of holes in Tiffany's original story. Now, at that time, Tiffany said that she'd been tied up for multiple days and there were no marks indicating any kind of binding or, or ligatures. So he had pleaded guilty there and he was sentenced to prison time and he obviously got out. Now, the way that this goes down is they end up in January, late January, they charge him with murder. And what they said was he used a circular saw on his wife. Um, he was charged with one count of murder and police found Tiffany's blood and tissue on a power saw that he had borrowed from a friend and returned without the blade. They still have not found Tiffany's body, but they said that while they were investigating her disappearance, they learned that, that he had borrowed a battery operated circular saw and returned it a few days later to a friend. The friend contacted the police and they turned it over to, uh, over to the police, the friend that the Oregon state crime lab inspected it. They found uh, bodily tissue and blood on the saw. A test revealed that the DNA on the saw belonged to Tiffany. Police said that they then served multiple search warrants that they collected evidence that hasn't been necessarily released yet that provided evidence that this was a death investigation. Um, and I don't think that this case is adjudicated right now. I th if, if it is... It was quiet. It, then it didn't make the news and there's not a lot of court records on it. It kind of slips right on through. But I wanted to bring her up because it's that time of year again. And while we've talked about depression a lot through these holiday episodes where people are concerned for them, I'm concerned for people who like end up like spending a lot of time alone. Um, I've been there, done that. Um, I know how terrible it can be to be sort of by yourself, but there are, is a completely different group of people out there who aren't alone and can't be alone like Tiffany Lazone. And there's all sorts of reasons that these go down. There's no reason to blame anyone, but it's always good to be thinking of them, talking to them, engaging with them, um, engaging with people who could possibly be them. Um, I think that Tiffany's death is a, is a tragedy. Um, I do not think that it's tragic. It's, you know, it's a tragic series of events, but I think it's literally a tragedy because it is forecast in the news for eight years before she actually is missing. Um, you can find all the way, this guy's mentioned in the news all the way back to 2011. And I, I think you can clearly see a pattern of behavior leading to this that a lot of people could have intervened in along the way. And I'm not blaming any of them for not doing it, but you never know if you can help. That's true. And uh, you're right. It, sometimes it's really hard for me to remember that a lot of our court system is redress, right? It's, it's not really prevention. It's uh, addressing things after they've happened. Right. Yeah. And, it seems to me like he was just abusive enough 
to torment her without leaving enough evidence behind, right? Or showing his true self to anybody else that could substantiate her claims or whatever the case may be. And I know a lot of times, um, this happens to be a situation where it made the news, right? Um, for what, I guess because of, you know, our never ending news cycle. And, uh, I'm sure that especially online reporting, uh, you know, they probably have a constant feed of what's happening at the courthouse. Right. Uh, and this was a, uh, domestic type issue that it was interesting because of the way it sort of played out. Right. Uh, and so I think that's why it made, uh, the news because to go from, you know, attempted, uh, well, whatever the charges were, they were pretty serious and then, you know, nothing. Um, but I think that, um, I always have to remind myself because I'm like, this should not have happened and it shouldn't have, but I wouldn't point to anybody in particular. The system is specifically not supposed to interfere with stuff that doesn't fall under, you know, the purview of what it's designed to address, right? We, there are some things that come up that are preemptive and, ways to like proactively detour this type of thing from happening. Right. But uh, for the most part, it requires somebody. I mean, I, all I can think of is like, it's too bad. She didn't have like a really good friend that could advocate for her maybe, or, you know, somebody to say, Hey, it's not PTSD. You're in an abusive relationship. Yeah. Uh, whatever it would have taken. And, you know, that's not necessarily anybody's job, really. And it's really hard to balance the line of when you get involved and when you mind your own business, right? Yeah. I look at cases like this, and there's nothing good to say about them. They're very complex in terms of um, how you would even, like, if you had known Tiffany and spoken to Tiffany, I don't know necessarily that outcomes change just because it happened, but they could have. Um, this is an open case uh, in in Oregon. One of the aspects of this case I find interesting, uh, he is charged. I, I don't see any sort of disposition. I'm going to guess that it has to do with sort of like the pandemic and stuff happening, and that's why there's he's in jail just sitting there, right? But I would like to point out one of the reasons why this particular case isn't like some of the other cases we've covered during our Home for the Holidays this year is because um, there was a third party that came forward with information, right? Yes, there were several third parties that came forward here. uh, Specifically, he had borrowed a saw, right? Craig Lazone had borrowed a saw from a friend and when it was returned, it was a weird thing where like the blade was gone. And so they were able to obtain DNA and that's the kind of thing it's, that almost never happens in these cases where uh, it's a domestic situation. The family last saw the person on Christmas and now they're gone and they don't really know what happened. But in this particular case, the reason investigators were able to, take it beyond just like who knows what happened was because of further information. 
Yeah. And so uh, as of right now, there is no adjudication. There won't. So we're recording this in a time like ahead of time so that um, that we knew we would have the right number of cases and to do as many cases as we just did for the holidays. That's ahead of like a potential trial here. But I will say I already knew when I sat down to do this one that the trial, there were some discovery related issues in August. They had a hearing that produced a massive amount of discovery and it was delayed into June of 2024 um, and potentially that's for the next round of motions. And then September, 2024 is when they're hoping to have a jury seated. I have followed this case for uh, quite some time, but from the perspective of like knowing that they were looking for, I think it's a 20 day trial. It was going to be a 10 day trial. Then I think the defense asked for a couple more days for experts it's just been delayed and delayed. And like you said, it starts in the beginning of the pandemic, like it's ahead of the pandemic, but then it's caught up where he's charged in 2020 and it's, it's sprawled out and we're now in 2023, but we're actually looking at September into October being the 20 days that they'll have the trial going uh, in 2024. So we're not going to hear about this one for a while, unless something interesting comes out of the evidence and the news media latches on to it. Um, the arrest was made fairly quickly, though. Yeah, they knew what happened to this guy quick. Uh, to this, uh, They knew what happened between this, these two pretty quickly, yes. That's all I have on this case for now. I have, an, uh, I have a series of missing persons I wanted to talk to you about pretty briefly. The next one that goes into NamUs is also December 25th, 2019. And I'm sort of going backwards in time. I know that's that wasn't what you intended when you put all this together, so I apologize for that. But it's, this is the same time, but then the next one is further back. This is Paris Lachelle Hobson. And so she gets put into NamUs in January of 2020 after going missing December 25th, 2019, out of um, Stark County. Now, she is in NamUs as MP64218. She was 26 years old when she goes missing. She'd be 30 today. She's five feet, two inches tall. Uh, she's an African-American female. She weighed somewhere in the range of 220 pounds or so. Now, Charlie Project has her, and they have a little bit better description. Um, she pops up on, she has like a, an active Facebook page where her family is sort of looking for her, but then she also has her own account that's up there and people still tag her in it. The Ohio attorney general's office has a link on her. Our black girls has a link on her. Uh, the Massillian uh, independent has a link and NBC news has covered her a little bit as well as the Canton reporter. Here's what Charlie project comes up with. They said she's last seen wearing a black peacoat, a magenta shirt with purple stripes, blue jeans, and tall black boots with gold buckles. She was carrying a black bag. Uh, she's got black hair, brown eyes. Her ears are pierced. Uh, she has her name and a pair of lips tattooed on her chest. She's a rose tattooed on her foot and ankle. And she has an unspecified tattoo on her upper back close to her neck. Uh, there's a lot of pictures on Charlie Project. There's a lot of pictures on Facebook. There are multiple pictures and names of her. Smiling face. Uh, really big smile. So here's what runs down um, in the description on uh, Charlie Project looks like the easiest one to talk about. Uh, Paris was last seen in Ohio on Christmas Day, 2019. 
She lived with her mother in Columbus, Ohio, and was visiting family and where she grew up for the holiday. During a family gathering at her grandparents' home on Shriver Avenue Southeast, she appeared to be anxious. She was pacing back and forth. Just after 2.30 p.m., she left to go on a walk in the neighborhood to clear her head. She may have planned to walk to Shriver Park, which was nearby on 3rd Street. She left all her belongings behind, including her car, her wallet, her credit cards, and her phone. And she's never been heard from again. In 2017, Paris's brother was critically injured in a car accident when another driver caused a head-on collision and then fled the scene. Paris's brother remained on life support for months until his death in 2018 at the age of 23. This was Paris's only sibling. That other driver was never identified, and Paris had been trying to find out who he was. Now, they note on Charlie Project that it's unclear whether her brother's death is related to Paris disappearing. According to her family, Paris is not involved in any of the typical high-risk lifestyle things. She didn't do drugs. She didn't suffer from mental illness. Her family says she had no reason to walk out of her life. She's a graduate of Washington High School and Cleveland State University, and she was working in an administrative position for an insurance company at the time she went missing, and she had previously worked as an event planner. Paris's cousin stated that she was dating a man who had been trying to alienate her from her loved ones, but it's unclear whether this man was involved in her case. So the circumstances of her disappearance were unclear, and her case remains open and unsolved. That's a, a pretty recent case. And I am hoping that that Paris is out there and that Paris comes home for the holidays. Did you find anything else about Paris when we were hunting here? I didn't. Um, and this is sort of, it's kind of one of the worst type of cases because she literally was visiting her grandparents and like went out for a walk. Right. Yeah. It seems like it was, I, I imagine that, you know, it probably was like, okay, well do your report. You know, what do we do? She didn't come back. Right. Um, and then I feel like the behavior that they observed was all in hindsight. Right. They were looking back on the day. And so, I mean, obviously if anybody knew something bad was about to happen, I assume they would, you know, say something or do something. And so I always wonder about those kind of accounts of things, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not saying that there's anything like, uh, I don't feel like anybody's lying. I just, you know, when you look back and you're like, oh, she's pacing and she was nervous. And I presume they were like, what's wrong? And she said nothing. And she's an adult and they, you know, they didn't press the issue, right? Yeah. It, it's odd that she left her phone behind, isn't it? A little bit, yeah, To and walked off somewhere. That is odd. I, I don't understand that part of it, because it seems like even if you were... It sounded to me like she was going to meet somebody. D did you get that impression? I mean... I got the impression she... Yeah, I, I got the impression that that was the thought, that she was going to meet someone. I did not understand... The leaving the phone behind as it ties to that, because that's a little odd to me. Cause it seems like you'd be like, I'm on my way. All right. I'm here. Yeah. Unless I don't, I don't know. There could be something weirder going on here. Uh, I don't know what that would be. 
I don't know either. I just find it odd. Uh, maybe her phone was dead and she needed to charge it. Like that would be relevant detail probably, I think. Okay, and I also feel like bringing up the brother's accident, more than likely, I don't think that had anything to do. Uh, that's a that's tragic, but I don't think it had anything to do with her disappearance because that's not the kind of thing she would like keep a secret. I don't imagine. Right. Yeah. And then you kind of default back to like, she's in this uh, possibly questionable relationship. Right. Yeah. Um, again, it seems like that might be being said in hindsight. Uh, and it, leave which I don't know I'm imagining this and I could be completely off base your family's all together she leaves to go for a walk and she doesn't say I'm gonna go meet you know my boyfriend right around the corner I'll be right back right yeah so that makes it seem sort of secretive or like she doesn't maybe her she doesn't want her family to know that uh, maybe they don't like him or whatever and then the other thing is like well I always wonder if people who leave get hit by a car right um, yeah, I, that's, yeah. that's one of the big things for me too. I would find, I don't know that irony is the right word, but because he specifically mentioned her brother being in a car accident and, uh, you know, ultimately I assume he died from the, in, from the side effects of the injuries he sustained. Right. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah. That's, and, that's what it, he dies a year later. So yeah. Right. But I feel like that was a contributing factor. And so, um, it makes me wonder, like, it would be, it would be sort of odd if she were to also have become victim of a, like, gotten hit by a car and then that driver would have to dispose of her body or she'd have to be hit in a way that she wasn't found and the person didn't stop and report it. Like, that would be kind of odd um, for both of them to have that sort because the driver of the car was never found the one that hit her brother. Right. Correct. Okay. And so that just, I mean, that makes it less likely, but I always wonder about people um, out walking around. I feel like you could very easily get hit by a car when you're out walking around and that's always a possibility. And it's the other things. It's the not being found or being taken away from the scene. Those things are where you get well, into statistical anomalies. Well, and the fact that, like, I mean, it would be very odd for there to be two siblings in a family and they both suffer the, the kind of traumatic accident and both drivers, like, flee the scene or whatever happened, right? I just, I feel like that would be really odd. I don't know. I don't feel like there are a bunch of statistics on how often that happens in families or whatever, right? It would just be a strange situation. But it also seems like she would have mentioned that to somebody if... It was, I mean, like, I'm just going to go for a walk. I'll be right back. That kind of thing. I don't know that she would have, I, I, there's just a lot of unanswered questions here. And I feel like they were trying to give her some, you know, privacy, which of course she is an adult and could be missing some stuff. Cause it, the focus is odd in her sort of circumstances surrounding her disappearance. It's odd. They bring up her brother, um, but I imagine they were just grasping at whatever they possibly could think of. She does look like a super happy person, right? Yeah, that's why I mentioned her smile. She is smiling in every photo I found of her. She and and to like leave on Christmas and she actually kind of looks like the type of person who wouldn't want to ruin Christmas for everybody else. 
Yeah, I would. That's the impression I get from her. And so I don't know how seriously they took her disappearance. I mean, she left and didn't come back. So this was not a situation where, you know, months went by before anybody noticed she was missing. Like she didn't come back from leaving briefly. And that's a weird thing. That's a very weird thing to not take anything with you. And unfortunately, it if somebody doesn't have their daily essentials with them, but, you know, she didn't have her license, her debit card, her... Her car was left behind. She left her car at the house. Okay, so her car is left behind. And so, you know, obviously, I hope... This is not a, this is not a situation where she's walked away from her life, right? That, that didn't happen. If she it, did, she didn't do it on her own accord, I think is the point. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a stranger abduction. It could have been that this guy talked her or put her in a situation where she ends up isolated from her family. Now that's something that can also happen in domestic violence cases. It usually doesn't happen to this extreme because they want to call as little attention to it as possible. So I, you know, I don't know. I can say there's a a lot of conversation going on on Facebook about this. Like relevant speculation. Not that I can tell. I went through everything that's on there right now. It's I I went I uh, there's a group you can join called Finding Pairs. It's got about four thousand members. Um, I went on and and I I joined it from the perspective of just seeing if I could glean anything, and I can't. And the family is kind of active on there. It's getting like the group has gotten just big enough that it's getting. A, a little weird. I don't know if you know what I mean when I say that, but it gets weird when people are trying to help but don't know what to do and they start kind of speculating and talking. A lot of that's been shut down a little bit. But the family's done like quite a few things. There's a guy on there that says he's her business partner. He's her business partner? That's what he says. And I believe he's referencing her having been an event planner. And he's very active on there. And that's all I'll say about him. If, if people want to go and, and read there, I'm not going to speculate about someone who's trying to be active, but um, there are people and they're talking very clearly talking about uh, like where she was and what was going on. People have some ideas about little bridges that are nearby, little things along her walk. Um, I, you know, I, there's not much else I could offer this case except to try and spotlight it a little bit while we were doing these missing persons cases because it's a Christmas missing persons case. And it, it like there are people talking about her and I just think it's fantastic that, that they're talking about her. So I'm trying to encourage that part of it, but I don't, I, I don't want to misrepresent this. I have no idea what's happening here. Um, There was a note in 2019, four days after it, it said, please, everyone, the police need us to back off a little. Okay, they have some info and evidence that it's leading them in a way they're going to have a professional team come in. And that is never mentioned again. And I don't find any announcements from the police. I do find a lot of work towards memorials and sharing her story. So that's all I got for this one. I didn't know if you had something else. I just want to point out that it's out there. I don't have anything additional. I hope that um, something will come to light and 
I, I feel like this is one of the more hopeful cases where there is the potential she could be alive. That's the reason I put her in here from your list. Oh, you um, really think so? Yeah, I do. From all the statistical anomalies that we, whether she's trying to get away from someone and did it the wrong way and, and like hasn't been able to get back out of it or someone has dragged her away, I think there's that possibility. I, I feel like with what was left behind, that would be, that's very optimistic. I'm just trying to be as optimistic as I can with her case. It's Christmas. Uh, So this is a missing person. I told you, I got a pile of them here. He's out of some place that we've already talked about, uh, Lake County, Florida. He goes into NamUs on September 23rd of 2020, but he'd actually been missing since December 25th, 2018. He's in NamUs is MP73896. He is a Caucasian male that would have been 23 years old. Five feet, eight inches tall, around 180 pounds. He had brown hair that was styled in dreadlocks. Uh, a lot of facial hair, like a big uh, a big particular style of beard. Um, there's a lot of photos of him on here. He has gauges in both ears and a lot of tattoos on his arms, his forearms, uh, some on his face, on his knuckles, his blue eyes. This is Robert Ryan Snowberger. He does not have a lot of information out there, but I wanted to include him. Circumstances of his disappearance on Charlie Project and NamUs, uh, as well as the FDLE website, Lake County Sheriff's Office, uh, Missing People of the U.S. has him. You know, so they describe a little more detail on his tattoos and stuff. You can go on any of those and kind of read about them. It's a very long list. He had a medical condition at the time. He was suffering from depression and Snowberger had attempted suicide about a week before his disappearance. His family last heard from him at this Christmas. So this gets weird. Okay. So you'll see December 25th, 2018, there's this weird text message to his family, but allegedly He was hospitalized in early 2019, and another text message pops from his girlfriend on February 13th. This text message said that they had been in the Ocala National Forest with the Rainbow Coalition, and that Robert Ryan Snowberger had left her leaving all of his belongings and his pet dog behind. And he has never been heard from again. So he has connections in Tennessee and Ohio, as well as various areas down in uh, Florida. The Lake County sheriffs have this case. It does have some fairly current information, but there's some conflicting information out there. He does not appear to have used his social media in a meaningful way that I could find. So I don't necessarily know that he was using it in a meaningful way to begin with. There are a few things out there you can find of his in terms of posts and photos, but I thought I would mention him here. I, you know, the likely outcome here, if he had, if he truly, was in this situation where he had attempted to commit suicide. I don't think this one's going to have a good outcome. I think um, there's a there's a potential that 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 urge or those ideations got the best of him. Again, he's in Ocala, 
in the National Forest, which we've talked about before, you can find some interesting commentary about him on the internet from places that I, I don't I don't want to go into this right now because it's not about missing people. You can go look up Rainbow Camp and you can dig into Rainbow Children and you can enjoy the insanity that come with that rabbit hole. We've talked about them before on this podcast and I've kept it to a minimum. Um, but that is, it's mentioned with regards to Robert Ryan Snowberger. So I'm mentioning it here because it's on his name as page and it's on several of the places that you will find uh, if you go looking for him online. Did you have much on him? I, you know, I think you and I kind of went, uh, we, we might know what happened to him because we, we sort of feel like he's a, a, a potential for uh, having harmed himself. Right. Or uh, just walked out into the wilderness away from his life. He left his dog behind. Always makes me wonder. I feel like, um, I don't know. What, have you seen if he was living in the woods? It says that he was at that time. Okay. Um, and so I feel like there was just, I think there's a lot of stuff, uh, personal stuff going on with him. And I find it over time, most of the time where there's, and, and I don't know if it skews it, but if uh, if a suicide attempt or a suicidal ideation is mentioned in the course of the circumstances of someone's disappearance, it's a good likelihood that, you know, they committed suicide or, like, you know, went out into the woods and didn't come back. And that's just my observation, right? Right. Uh, occasionally it's not the case and uh, you know there's a lot of cases that mention it and the the people are still missing but um i find that i know i uh almost subconsciously i don't disregard them i just put them in the probably didn't come to harm at the hands of someone else pile right yeah i don't I, that's probably not the best way to like look at things, but I find it uh, just really hard to kind of come back from like, you know, the week earlier suicide attempt. I, I have all the sympathy in the world for him, but if, you know, if he, he did something by choice, that's not really my business. Right. Except, I mean, if it's done, it's done. Right. Yeah. I, 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 we're, you know, true crime versus, Missing persons versus suicide. There's some fine lines we get into there. Well, sure. And I, w I mean, it would be great for him to be uh, brought back home. But I even have I even have mental wars with myself over, like, if it was somebody's choice to go out and not be found, right? Well, yeah. You know, I'm pretty careful about, like, I try and weed those cases out. This guy, okay, let me tell you what stood out about him for a second. He has a blog in the early 2000s and he talks very openly about different diagnoses when he is young. So I think 2009, I, I read some blog entries about him. He calls himself McMuffin in the, in the blog entries and he has a YouTube channel and he has some different stuff going on. What stood out to me about this one is when you have a missing persons case where somebody was trying to 
and I'm not saying this is the case with with Robert Ryan Snowberger um, or McMuffin. I'm saying this from the perspective of other cases. Sometimes when people have mental health problems, for good reasons or bad reasons, they can f- make it a mission to get away from their family. Either that's the origin of some of the things in their mind, whether it's right or not, is irrelevant. They can imagine things that are totally normal to be abusive, or they can be suffering from abuse. There's a lot of things that can make a person want to not have contact with their family. And in those cases, a lot of times when other people are trying to either assist or cover up what's happening, you will get misinformation thrown around about a case in a way that somebody like me goes hunting, they find the misinformation. And so Charlie Project, NamUs, and a couple of the news sources here, which are kind of sparse, all have a wild series of dates involved. So NamUs says he's last seen by family in December, 2018. Robert's family received a text on 12, 13, 2019 from his girlfriend. So you hear that, right? Yeah, I hear it. Then we have December, 2019, according to NamUs, but you know, and, and that, you know, there is a case for him and NamUs where like, he's literally sitting with a case file number that I had trouble identifying further. But then there's also, entries for him on Charlie project where it says it's February 13th, 2019. And one of the Facebook pages mentions it is February 13th, 2019 ahead of Charlie project having this case on there. I I noticed that with um, this one, if you you go online, you can read some different theories about uh, Mr. Snowberger. And I think that's better left to the online theories, because there is a theory that he didn't just walk off and he was potentially killed by a girlfriend and it's tied to an ongoing murder case. But I didn't find enough credible sources for us to cover it that way. But I wanted to mention, we have a couple of other missing people. Now, these guys, these are there's three of them that are all from Christmas 2017. Um, and that they're going to be the last ones that we sort of talk about in terms of missing people. Uh, just... You know, starting where we started, going back in time, 2017 is the last uh, one for this year. The first one of that group is in NamUs as of December 17, 2018. So he basically goes in a year later. He goes missing from Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania, which is in Delaware County up there. He's 35 years old when he goes missing, 5'10", 200 pounds. He's like right in the middle of that, that sort of... I guess it would be like a no man's land where there's just not a lot of information about him and people expect that he's not going to be vulnerable. He's a a white male and his name is David L. Horn Jr. Uh, In terms of NamUs, he's missing person 54141. He had blue eyes and strawberry hair. He had a lot of tattoos. Some of them are listed as unknown and in different places, different sources. Um, He does have a Charlie project. His usual attire is jeans and a hoodie, but they don't know what he was wearing when he went missing. He goes by Dave. Now, he would be 41 years old if he were, if he is still with us. 
And Delco Daily Times has them. There is a Facebook page that he had, and then there's a few people that talk about him on Facebook. David, he was last, or Dave, was last seen at Connolly's Pub in the 900 block of Market Street in Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania. And that was between 7 and 7.30 p.m. on December 25th, 2017. He called for an Uber, but then the Uber got canceled. And since that activity on his phone, he's never been heard from again. At the time of David's disappearance, he was living alone in his deceased grandmother's house on Price Street. He told his family that he was going to be traveling for Christmas. So they weren't super concerned when they didn't hear from him because they thought that he was going to Las Vegas, Nevada. But on January 5th, David's father went to the home he was living in to check on him. And David's pickup truck was in the driveway and the house was deserted. So dad lets himself in because he has a key to grandma's house. He found the television was still on, the lights were on, and the fans were running. He also found David's plane ticket that he had planned on uh, for the trip to Las Vegas. So it's unused. And he found several empty uh, vodka bottles and there's no sign of him. So David's mom reports him missing on January the 9th after they can't find him. In spite of his drinking problem, the family says that David was never out of touch with close relatives. His mother was very active in the search for him and she died unexpectedly in January 2018. And if David's still with us, he may not be aware of this. There has not been any activity on his bank accounts or his cellular phone since Christmas of 2017. And his case remains unsolved. Uh, when you took a look at this one, did you find anything unusual going on? No, I didn't. I didn't find actually anything really. Um, it's never a good sign when your bank accounts and cellular phones have gone unused. Uh, he is living in his deceased grandmother's house. Uh, so, you know, it's unlikely he had a ton of disposable income. Uh, another thing was his mom died in uh, January of 2018. Which yeah. Which would have been uh, shortly after they had last seen him. And for whatever reason, um, he well, because he's missing, he may not know uh, that she had passed away. And uh, it was it's an odd thing for him not take note of that um, if indeed he was taking a break. I didn't I didn't see anything, which of course, if his mom died shortly after um, he went missing, uh, I, I believe she was kind of uh, she was searching for him, but of course she was gone so shortly thereafter. It's really hard to tell kind of what happened. It's weird that the Uber was ordered and, and then canceled like it was. Well, so the Daily Times has multiple articles kind of covering what happens after she passes away. His cousin, Tim Horn, kind of picks up where mom leaves off. So Marie dies, and that was unexpected. But then father, David Horn Sr., and... Tim Horn, they keep looking for David. There's said to be no foul play suspected. Uh, this is according to the local police there. 
uh, in the death of Marie Horn. But there's a number of things that come up that are a little odd. The detective from the local police department, he says it's not just Marie Horn's death that's not suspicious. It's just sudden. But also they don't suspect any foul play on the disappearance of David Horn Jr. Now, for Tim and uh, David Sr.'s part, they had spent a lot of weeks uh, out in the local area, just sort of, according to them, they were just sort of searching along. They had organized uh, multiple search parties. And Tim, who's 34 at the time, so he's around the same age as, as David, he said they would go walking through the woods, kind of trying to like imagine what path David had taken. And they had concentrated on the areas that were kind of wooded around town in the area known as trainer and in Marcus hook directly, they were able to track him. They're the ones who track him back to Connolly's pub. And there's, you know, no bank transactions afterwards. And they are able to look and find on his, uh, I think it's his iCloud they're using that that last Uber is really his last interaction with anybody. And when he canceled it, they weren't really sure if maybe he walked home. Now, uh, they do describe his drinking problem as pretty extreme. And David Sr. basically says, because of that, they just assumed he would, he would show up. So the first thing they did was they went out looking at all the bars and checking to see where he might have a tab, where he might have, you know, paid for something around this time. And they weren't able to, to track him anywhere. And I think the trail just kind of goes cold. Now, Fox 29 picks up a, a, a second story, it, like on the one-year anniversary, and uh, David Sr. describes the same setup as before, and they said that David Jr., one of the things that was weird was he did work, even though he had this problem with alcohol, he did work, and he did keep up with everybody. Now, they also have children involved here. And I believe David had gone through a divorce before, like long before this. I don't think it was still kind of ongoing when he goes missing. But he, he quite literally, uh, David sort of walked out of his life and, and disappeared. From what I can tell... There's not any ongoing uh, searches beyond, like, family. So, um, in this case, I guess I was a little bit confused. So, he, he forewent his um, trip. His father found an unused plane ticket, right? Yeah. Um, and so, his so he wasn't taking an Uber to the airport. He was taking an Uber home from a bar, Correct, which okay. is another thing that's that's kind of been a theme in all of this this Christmas. Yeah, a lot of people out at bars on Christmas. And so, okay, now, uh, his vehicle's at home. He had been drinking at a bar. There's no details with regard to how that went, except that he sort of had this overarching 
indulgence in alcohol, right? So right. we can imagine he was drunk. So, you know, we don't know how he got to the bar, right? Uh, we don't know if he was with anybody, do we? No, I think that the way that they tracked this down is all through his um, his phone. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, so here's what I was wondering. There's a lot of things here that could point towards like a misadventure, right? Yeah. Uh, on his walk back home. But how far can somebody really be? Um, and how could they really be like that missing given just the parameters that he's had a misadventure and the misadventure had to have occurred from, you know, point A to point B during this period of time. I don't know when the first person couldn't get a hold of him or whatever, but you, you see what I'm saying? Like how far could he really be? It's so if you look at uh, Connolly's pub, I can give you a couple things here. So Connolly's pub is on 939 uh, Market Street. And it's in a place called Marcus Hook, PA. He's about a mile and a half from Grandma's house at that point. In my mind, I looked at it and I thought he probably just went, I'm not going to... I'm not going to need to Uber home. I'm going to walk home. Right. And so, I mean, is it, is it a mile and a half that's like doable? Yeah, it's doable. It does. So here's what gets interesting, just in my opinion. It's, if you look at this on a map, it will actually shock you where it is, but it's right on the Delaware River. We've been here before. We've looked at this area before. We've looked at north of here before. It is a very similar situation to how, like, basically, if you walk a mile and a half in the other direction, you're at Subaru Park and you can walk across uh, the Commodore Barry Bridge into New Jersey. You follow what I'm saying there? Yeah. So if he, if he were to harm himself, there are areas here he can do it. It's kind of an odd area for somebody to disappear while walking because it is, uh, I like, even though we may not know the names of these places, I consider this to be like an urban ish area. Okay. So if he leaves Connolly's park and he basically goes kind of South and East, he would be headed to the Delaware river. He could cross the Marcus hook Creek. If he walks down 10th street, if he walks Is he up, he's gonna be headed that way to go home. No, he shouldn't be towards okay. the river. So if he's walking up Tenth Street or up Price, uh, up to Price Street from Ridge Road, which is probably the likely place that you would walk, he's gonna be walking past things like there's three neighborhoods here, lots of stores, two other pubs. There's a creek along the way. There's two different parks that kind of tie into this area. Generally speaking, it's an odd area to walk away from and, and, and go that kind of missing. Right. That's what I was sort of getting at. And so I always wonder, like, and I don't know, like, what the circumference or what the area, like, is, you know, okay, once we've looked at all these places, uh, there's no feasible way that it was just like a misadventure on his way home, right? 
Um, I don't know because to me it seems like the less cognizant someone is of their surroundings, the weirder um, places they can end up, right? Yeah, that's kind of how I look at things, yeah. Um, and it's always going to be like the least expected place uh, when they can't be found. And so, uh, but those are odd cases. Most of the time you're looking at a situation where if something doesn't happen to him, so he's young. And so even if he was like really inebriated, right, if something doesn't happen, uh, that causes him to be like worse off than just inebriated. Okay. Yeah. There's no reason for him to die. Right. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's not like he would be in the woods. Like this is not a situation where he's going to get off track enough that like he wouldn't eventually come across somebody. And so when things like that happen, like I feel like anybody on foot, there's always a chance they got hit by a car somehow. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like it's, well, I say that, but at the same time, I don't think there's that many people that would be sort of driving on Christmas and hit a drunk person and not stop and render aid, right? Um, I actually feel like more people would stop than wouldn't stop. I could be wrong about that, though. Especially if you're driving where you're absolutely supposed to be driving and somebody's walking where they perhaps shouldn't be walking because you haven't done anything wrong, right? But, I mean, I guess it's possible that, you know, that's not the case. Not to mention, like, how many people are out on the road on Christmas? Most people are at home or, you know, well, I guess you could be going to, like, a family member's home. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you there. I couldn't. You know, I couldn't track down something that made sense here. Uh, I did think about that. He would have to have been, you know, if there was a hit and run where someone thought they hit an animal. and That that only really works, though, like on the highway. You have to be going pretty fast to think that you hit an animal, right? I tend to agree with you, yeah. Okay. Like, and then you're like, well, wait, was that a deer, right? Um, but like, if you're going through town here, I imagine it's probably like 35 or 45. I mean, you're going to, it's, you're not going to have a question. Yeah. I, I don't have a good answer for like what happened to this guy. Like I would, I, I wanted to mention him because he's still missing and I sort of hunted through and said, okay, are we looking for somebody here that like could have been an overdose? Like he goes with some people he doesn't know and like. But it seems seems to be that alcohol is his drug. I don't know that for sure. Yeah, but wouldn't he have been found though? I would think I would think so, unless you've got people dumping bodies on Christmas. That's where it gets weird for me. And I looked, you know. Well, and so as soon as that happens, it's no longer misadventure, right? Well, as soon as somebody's put their hands on his body and done something with it, even if they didn't kill him, like that's it's not just his own misadventure, right? Yeah. Um, for this to be his own misadventure. I don't see 
and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have a misperception. Maybe he was on something besides just alcohol. I just don't see like a young man, you know, well, for one thing, if he dropped dead from some sort of, you know, alcohol poisoning, or if he was so drunk that, you know, it killed him somehow. It seems like he would have just fallen out where he stood, right? I would think so, yeah. As opposed to, you know, hiding his body for six years or whatever. And so that's where these cases get really weird to me. Because to me, like, unless he was hit by a car or fell in a hole or, I I don't know, I'm sure other things could happen. Like, something has to come between him even being inebriated and walking home And the fact that, like, he just fell off the face of the earth. He's not going to just die in the middle of nowhere because I doubt very seriously he could have even gotten to the middle of nowhere based on where he was last seen. Yeah, I well, he had a couple pictures up on his Facebook that looked like places he had been to that were in and around where he was living. There's not much to this story other than that. Like, you know, this, this is a big, healthy guy. He sort of walks off the planet. Is it depression related or something like that? I don't know the answer. But I I do know that he didn't come home for the holidays. It was stressful for his family. Well, he also didn't go on the trip for the holidays, which is super weird. Yeah. I don't know what that might be related to. I don't like I wondered like, you know, what was the whole idea of going to Vegas? Well, maybe he had a falling out with the people he's going to go with. Could um, be. Maybe he just decided he didn't want to go. Maybe there was a financial issue after he had, even though he had bought the plane ticket, something else had fallen through. I mean, I guess there could be like a lot of reasons why he didn't go, but that's an odd thing, right? It, it could also be that he was just really depressed, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of odd there to, to buy a plane ticket somewhere and then not go on the trip. It's strange. There are aspects of this case that these are the people that you talk about, like when you and I have conversations, not on True Crime Excess, where it kind of ends with, I wish that person would have just left a note because then I could confirm my, my suspicion. But the truth is someone who might be committing suicide, this might be how they do it. Uh, I'm not saying he did. I'm saying, but you might never know what happened. I've wondered about that and it always seems like inappropriate to put that out there, but it, it makes me wonder like, well, was this like the final, you know, screw you from them as far as like them not being found. However, I, I, I don't know that that even crosses someone's mind, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think it's that kind of logic going on. Like when you're to that point, it could be, but I don't, I, I think usually if if you're going to harm yourself, you're just going to harm yourself. And uh, I don't know if that's the case here. I just wanted to mention him today. He fits into these categories we've been looking at. And I have two more kind of like that. This one's out of Fresno County, California. It's actually out of Auberry, California. And I could not find hardly anything on this case, but it is a name as his missing person, 64355. He is a Caucasian male, five feet, seven inches tall, 145 pounds. His name is Daniel Joseph McGinnis. He went by Danny McGinnis. He had brown shoulder length hair and brown eyes, lots of tattoos. Uh, I don't think he's actually on Charlie Project even. There were a couple of 
documents in terms of like the state of California having him and then Fresno County missing persons had him. That's about all I can offer up is that Daniel Joseph McGinnis went missing December 25th, 2017. And if he's still around, he would be 42 years old. Uh, he gets entered into NamUs in January 2020. And it says he was last seen in Albury, California. And that is all the information I found at, the, at this point in time. I always wonder um, when there's nothing additional like that, I'm always concerned that, you know, maybe they're not really missing. They're only missing to whomever reported them missing. It, it's just strange. And then this is, you know, Christmas, uh, especially Christmas Day, is sort of a dumping ground for uh, date of last contact, right? Yeah, for the holidays, it becomes a, a dumping ground. Because people, they're like, well, I can't remember when I saw him last, but I know I saw him on Christmas, right? Yeah, I, I talked to him at Christmas. Yeah. And so it's... These are always really odd cases to me, and it seems like somebody would know something if they could get in touch with the right person, probably. Well, so I had this this search that I used for missing people where he showed up at one point and then disappeared, and I wondered if he had been found, and that's why I can't find him. So with the California, like, Department of Justice. I can typically track people to a degree. And if he was found, it was not announced. He just went missing from the page. Uh, he is still in NamUs. So if they found him, it would be nice if he's identified and if he's sort of brought out of NamUs. But, you know, we, we haven't talked about this a lot, but you and I look for people sometimes for years, and I'm saying this from the perspective of just missing people, and they, as far as we know, they are found and everything is cleared up. For instance, if you go on NamUs right now and you go looking for Brandon Lawson, he has been found, we believe, but he is still in NamUs. Yeah, I don't know what the... Um... We thought it might be a DNA holdup. And then it's also true for William Owasco. We used to like run into this wall eventually where we couldn't find their old nameless profile because it had been closed out. Well, once it's closed, you can't find that, right? But um, so I don't know what the holdup is. Like, I don't know what the the time gap is. It seems like it's pretty long, though, because at least it seems like with Brandon Lawson, I mean, he's been found for possibly two years now. Could be. And William Owasco is probably in the same boat. And yeah, because we talked about them around the same time. And so I don't know. Like, I don't know where enough information is put together for it to hit the AP or however it happens. And, you know, a medical examiner or whatever to get, say, we've confirmed the identity of some unidentified remains and they are, you know, whoever they are and then how they end up coming out of NamUs. And so in these cases we're not familiar with, it's entirely possible. They're not missing. They're not alive. Um, and they're not unidentified. They're just uh, in this time gap. Yeah. The way we found out about William and Wasco was kind of strange and, there's, 
we still don't know anything about that really. Yeah. Well, it's interesting with both of them. They were both in places that I physically, I, I mentioned them because they, uh, William Wasco and Brandon Lawson, they were both in places I physically went to, to see what was the last thing they saw yeah. and, or the last place that they were seen ever, how you want to look at that. And I actually would have walked right past William Owasco. Like I just wouldn't have known he was there because he was not that far off the trails that I looked at. And Brandon Lawson, I'm pretty sure I came within 40 feet of him before I kind of hit an area where I'm like, do I want to commit this crossing this next, you know, like private land marker or not? But I think I was pretty close to where he was as well. And I think, let's see, um, I believe the family, like, basically confirmed that, I mean, there was nobody else that it would be, as opposed to Brandon Lawson, right? Having found remains like they did where they found them. I think they had, I think, uh, from what I understood and what I could read in the different forms it popped up on, they found clothing that matched, which is what I was looking for anyways, the shoes and the, yeah. Yeah, his shoes were found. And so, you know, that's enough for people who follow the case to be like, well, of course it's him. Like nobody else has ever gone missing on that, in that area, right? And there's no question that it's him. And then with Bill Owasco, the person wasn't named, but it was a hiker. And they confirmed to somebody, and I only remember this because they published a picture of his bone. But, his um, wallet was there? Is that yeah, the his idea? wallet was there. Um, that's what, And so the person confirmed, like, uh, the remains had a wallet with it with them and the wallet indicated uh the person's name was uh William Owasco, right? Yeah. And so to me that's, you know, pretty good confirmation. I and I I thought that one was probably a DNA holdup. I don't see why Brandon Lawson's would be a DNA holdup because he has a brother and children and his parents and all kinds of people they could test against. But it might be that area and the limited resources and the circumstances of the case, actually both of them are essentially are like misadventure cases, right? Yeah. And, you know, how much do you really want to devote to a misadventure? Well, yeah, in terms of resources, it gets complex. Because you've got, um, and so like, when do they come out and name us? Who knows? I, 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 we haven't run into this problem really before because we're kind of on this like middle of the cycle of what NamUs is, right? And so we haven't seen like a ton of cases come out, but there have been some that have come out, right? Yeah. It They take their own sweet time and I'm not even sure that there's a like firm procedure in place. Uh, I don't know who has the authority to pull them out once they're found, but I do know that there's some overlap and I always wonder especially in the cases um, like the ones we're talking about today with the guys that have gone missing on Christmas day, you know, I hope that they're not like out there found somewhere and we're, you know, unaware of it. I I have no idea, honestly, but with so little information, you have to wonder like, well, what's the deal? Yeah. I, I I wonder about these guys all the time. Um, It kind of never leaves your head after a while. This case goes into NamUs. This is December 25th, 2017. And it comes out of Louisville, Kentucky, which that's going to be Jefferson County. This is uh, missing person 42023. He is a Caucasian male, 5'11 to 6'1, 170 to 185 pounds. 
he would have been 27 years old at the time that he went missing. He goes into NamUs February 1st, 2018 for uh, having been missing December 25th, 2017. So he doesn't have a big lag time there. Uh, he was last seen around 10.30 p.m. He's described as having brown hair and blue eyes and some brown, possibly some brown facial hair. He has uh, multiple tattoos, scars. He was thought to have been wearing a black North Face pullover or jacket with black True Religion jeans uh, and size 10 and a half shoes uh, with... Uh, wallet and nice belt uh they're described as designer this is austin douglas gamez g-a-m-e-z that's uh an interesting way to spell his name um i've never seen that that way before he has a charlie project he's in a lot of uh, kentucky arrest pages uh, there's a Facebook page for him, and I think there's also his personal Facebook page. Five or six different uh, Kentucky outlets, including WDRB, Wave 3, and WLKY have covered him. And the Aware Foundation, um, which I think is out of Virginia, they've covered him as well. Uh, they have a slightly different uh, description of him on Charlie Project with some other information. So I'm going to pull some of that together. They say he's been missing from December 27th, 2017, and that he's biracial, Hispanic, and white. They describe his eyes as blue slash green. Uh, they say that he had a tattoo of a rosary on his chest, a tattoo of writing on a scroll on the inside of his right forearm, multiple tattoos on his left arm, including two stacks of money, skull faces, flames, the letters M-O-B. And they have some photos of that. It's kind of a patchwork sleeve that he's got going on there. So Austin is last seen by his family in the 400 block of Cambridge Station Way in Louisville, Kentucky on December 27, 2017, according to Charlie Project. Uh, he was last seen in the company of a female friend named Teresa McCoy, and they were planning to go look at a house that evening. Austin has never been heard from again. At 7 p.m., uh, the rented black Yukon that the pair was last seen in, which Austin had been driving, was found in the parking lot of Bessler's Auto Parts on Strawberry Lane, and McCoy's body was inside of it with a seatbelt still on. She had been shot to death, but Austin was not there. In December of 2019, so two years later, Larry Sauer, he gets charged with two counts of murder for killing McCoy and Austin, for Teresa McCoy and Austin. Investigators believe that he killed both of them at his home on Ottawa Avenue, and then he dumped Teresa's body where it was found, and he took Austin's body to an unknown location. Police also found a half a pound of methamphetamine and some drug paraphernalia at Sauer's home when they arrested him. It's said at the time he was awaiting trial. Uh, so Charlie Project kind of wraps this up and says it's uncharacteristic of Austin to be out of touch with his family and that he has two sons. His body has not been found, but foul play is suspected based on essentially the circumstances surrounding it. Now, okay, 
let me walk you through some of the crazy here. The charges against Larry Sauer, from what I can tell, they get dropped. So this is the guy suspected of their murder. Now, according to WDRB in March of 2023, they have an article that pops up by Darby Bean out there that says investigators continue searching South Louisville property for clues in 2017 case. And it says for the second day in a row, investigators dug into a backyard in Louisville, Jefferson, Jefferson town police, Louisville Metro police and the FBI have been digging in a yard at a home in the hundred block of Ottawa Avenue in the Beachmont neighborhood. According to Jefferson town police, the search is a connection to the 2017 murder of Teresa McCoy and the disappearance of Austin Gaymans. Police said they began searching related to an ongoing narcotics investigation. And Darby goes on Twitter and Instagram and stuff and like puts up photos of what's happening there. And it sort of redescribes that, you know, Teresa was found in the parking lot on Strawberry Lane, which is not far from here. So Amy Gamez, she found out about the latest search this week. And she said the last five years have been frustrating, scary. My life has stopped. My family's life has stopped. That's Austin's mom. She said the area around this property had been searched before, and she's trying not to get her hopes up, but she hopes that they'll find her son. And she said, I mean, that's what I want most of all is to find Austin. I just want answers for my family. This is her talking to Darby B. In recent years, two people have faced charges in this case. Thomas Lanham was arrested in January 2020 in connection with the case, charged with two counts of complicity to murder and complicity to tampering with physical evidence, but he gets released later and the charges get dropped. Prosecutors dismissed the case against him after they determined that DNA taken from blood found that his vehicle did not tie him back to these crimes. Another man who had been arrested in 20, December 2019, that's Larry Sauer, um, after police said they were able to time to the case using search warrants, witness statements, phone records, and video recordings. Police also said that that investigation led them to finding several items of evidentiary value pointing to his alleged involvement in the disappearances. He pleaded not guilty weeks after his arrest, and in February 2020, amended charges get filed against Sauer. He was initially charged with murder and tampering with evidence, but... Prosecutors dropped these charges in February, uh, February 21st, 2020, and they said that there was a misread DNA analysis report on Austin Gaymans. Which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm not 100. I think the court records here are a little muddy. So then Sauer gets charged with complicity to murder and tampering with physical evidence in the case. When... Darby is looking in March of 2023 in a court record. She doesn't find uh, Larry Sauer in there. And I haven't seen anything about him recently. Amy Gamez gets quoted again. She says, I want investigators to do everything they need to do to get everything they need to secure a conviction, not just an arrest, but a conviction. She said she hopes this dig can bring some type of evidence that allows her to begin to heal, but there will never be closure. Uh, so the house that they're searching is tied back to this Thomas Lanham guy. And they said the search is not connected to anyone currently living here. I don't know exactly what the outcome of this was. I went hunting to see if I could find a little more information on Larry Sauer. 
And he kind of just is not on the radar at the moment. I think that um, there was some misunderstanding and they held off on continuing to misunderstand because they kept charging and arresting and like that causes that undermines uh the investigator's credibility right well even though it is you know it's not like they're doing it on purpose it's just i'm not really sure what they were basing it on but it didn't seem to pan out twice right and so to me it seemed like they needed to perhaps get and the last one was in like 2020 so while they while um austin has been missing since uh, 17, Christmas of 17, the last arrest was in 20, right? It yeah. looks like. And then they, this year they've continued to search. I feel like they, um, had to perhaps not rely on the forensic DNA evidence that they had, because it seems like, I, I don't know if it's contaminated or I don't know what's happened. But something has happened, right? And so it seems like they're looking for more evidence before they make another um, uh, charge or take the next step or whatever it is that they're going to do. Yeah, so here's my theory. When they arrest these guys, it kind of happens quick. They arrest one guy in, in December, and then they arrest the second guy in January. So that's like... Basically, 2019 spills over into 2020. They bring in this Thomas Lanham guy and they hammer him and hit him with a $500,000 full cash bail. And when you do that, my personal opinion is typically you're looking to turn one against the other. But what happened instead was Thomas Lanham said, no, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. And he cashed out, cashed out quickly. So he puts up $500,000 cash and walks right out of jail. So when he did that, which is not an easy thing to do, that took away the leverage they had in this case. And that's what ultimately leads to when they go back and re-examine this evidence, trying to find an inroad, they end up stuck with basically Larry Sauer. And Thomas Lanham, the charges get dropped against him. And everybody walks out. But the bottom line in all of this is Austin Gamez's body has not been found. And that's what this family wants. Right. I hope um, it. Yeah. See, I, I just don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I wonder why um, his his girl. It was his girlfriend, right? They don't say that, but that's the implication well, they give. His acquaintance that he was uh, last known to be with, who was found um, in the rented Yukon, right? right. Yeah. That Austin had been driving. Um, so she's left. In fact, they say she even still had her seatbelt on, right? Yeah. Um, she was shot in a way that uh, indicated she didn't get out of the vehicle. And so what do you think um, is going on there for you know, her to be like still buckled in and him to be nowhere to be found. You're killing a witness. You killed somebody who saw you take him. Okay. So, and they're taking him for a reason, right? Yeah. They're take. I mean, like my guess is based on what is put out there is that investigators are taking the angle of this is drug related. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be my guess, too, especially after one of them put up $500,000 cash to get out. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised when that happened. I mean, there's so, you know, if people want to learn more about this case, there is a Facebook page that is Find Austin Game Mess. Uh, doesn't have a lot of recent activity, but they did post a lot of the information around this. And you can go on and read people's different theories that they have kind of for yourself. Amy Gamez is on there. She's kind of active. That's his mom, right? That's, that's Austin's mom, Amy. I feel like this is akin to those cases where police have a relatively good idea of what happened. I think that this may be like some huge misunderstanding and that's actually one of the contributing factors as to why they can't like solve it. You think maybe it's a mistaken identity or something? I, I don't know. It just seems to me like it's a really strange because it like at first, right. They've made two arrests, right. Even yeah. though they've dismissed the charges. So yeah, it does seem like, Oh yeah. Well, you know, the police have a little bit of an idea of what's going on here, right? Except, yeah. you know, then they have to dismiss the charges and the people aren't, you know, facing them any longer. And so that makes me wonder, well, what's going on? And so the only thing I can think of is, like, there's some sort of element that's mistaken. It could be, like, mistaken identity or it could be, you know, on – it could be mistaken identity on a lot of different sides, right? <laughs> The victims, the perpetrators, the uh, situation itself, right? Um, it, it's a strange thing. And we don't get into any information with regard to, except for the sort of overarching like drug element being possible. Like we don't know if there was some sort of love triangle going on. We don't know, like we don't know any other details, right? Yeah. But to me... For it to be like this cut, this sort of cut, and it's, I guess, not quite dry, right? Right. Um, there's something off, and I, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm thinking that um, it does seem like there's, they're continuing to look for the evidence, and perhaps they'll find something. I have a feeling, um, just like uh, his acquaintance was found, uh, I, I, it concerns me that he won't ever be found. Uh, unless somebody specifically says like what they did with him. Yeah. Yeah. This one was, um, I kept it for last cause it's kind of a head scratcher. It looks like all the elements are there, but I think you're right. I think ultimately potentially the disappearance itself is caused by some kind of misunderstanding or miss like, or something that law enforcement is misinterpreting because they've certainly misinterpreted other evidence in this case. And that makes it complex. I don't, I don't have much more on this. I want Austin to be found, and I want you know, the Game Mess family to know where he is. Um, at the end of the day, his, uh, his case is a head-scratcher, and it's, it's one that I hope will have some kind of resolution. It keeps seeming like it's headed that direction. Uh, I mean, even this year, we've got you know digs going on here where they're thinking they know something or they've had a tip that leads them somewhere in terms of the police involved. And, and I really, I just hope that he is found. I hope he's found and there's some resolution here. Yeah, I second that. I have an exoneration that kind of closed out the year or closed out the, the holidays. 
also, this is kind of an involved one. This actually comes out of Baldwin County, Alabama. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a murder sentence is what we're dealing with. The sentence was life in prison. Uh, there were also robbery convictions tied into this. The reported date of the crime is 1973. The conviction happens in 1973. And the exoneration occurs 24 years later in 1997. Uh, the ethnicity and demographics of the exoneree are, uh, he's a white male. And at the time of the crime, he was 17 years old. There's no DNA that contributes to this exoneration uh, in terms of factors. A false confession, false or misleading evidence forensically, uh, perjury or false accusation, official misconduct, and inadequate legal defense are what uh, sort of bring us to the story in terms of contributing factors. And here's what it says. In the early morning hours of May 22nd, 1973, Ronald Ryder, the night manager of Tony's gas station on the Mobile Causeway in Baldwin County, Alabama, was found dead of a severe head injury and $30 had been taken. Uh, Ronald Ryder is a 20-year-old male and he's literally just running the night shift at a gas station. A couple of hours later and less than 20 miles away, 68-year-old Harvey Hodges was found shot to death in the gas station where he worked in Saraland, Alabama, which now Baldwin County is where the first crime takes place. But in Saraland, we moved over to Mobile County or Mobile County, depending on where you're from in the South. Police determined that about $58 had been taken. Later that day, an employee of Alabama Power reported that they had found skeletonized remains of a body in a drainage ditch in Mobile County, not far from the gas station where Harvey Hodges was found killed. That body gets identified as a 43-year-old man named Theodore Roosevelt White. So police pretty quickly focus in on three people who had been in a motel in Saraland, Alabama. They're about two miles away from the location of Hodge's murder. So we've got a 21-year-old named John Brown, and then we've got a 17-year-old named Michael Pardue, and his then-girlfriend, who is a 16-year-old girl named Teresa Lanier. Michael Pardue was not having a great year. He and two other siblings who were both younger than him were present on April 24th of 1972 when Michael's father fatally shot Michael's mother in the trailer where they all lived. So Michael's father had been convicted of second degree murder and he was sentenced to prison. In January of 1973, Michael had pled guilty uh, as a youthful offender, meaning under the age of 18, to burglary of a vehicle, and he was on probation. On the night of May 22nd, 1973, a couple of hours before the first murder here of Ronald Ryder happens, Michael, Michael and Teresa had stolen a truck from a nearby garage 
because they were looking for a tire to put on Michael's car, which is at the motel where John Brown stayed behind and kind of watched the car and watched their stuff. Michael would later say they intended to return the truck before the garage opened for business the following morning. However, the truck got stuck in a, a, a ditch on the side of the road. So then they stole a red Volkswagen Beetle before going back to the motel room to meet John Brown. When the police connect Michael to the car thefts, they start looking for him. And when Michael learns that the police want to talk to him, which I believe is from the motel clerk, he comes into the Saraland police station on the morning of May 23rd, 1973. And he thinks he's going to be questioned about the stolen vehicles. And he feels like he needs to own up to what he did with the truck and the beetle. So for the next 78 hours, Michael is interrogated. And during this time, according to court records, he's beaten, he's starved, he's sleep deprived, he's denied access to his family and a bathroom. He ends up urinating on himself multiple times. And at one point, Michael tells the officers he needs some help. But officers failed to clarify if that meant he might be asking for an attorney. Okay, so this is a 17-year-old kid who is being interrogated for more than three days. During this interrogation, two different lawyers separately come into the police station and they say that they are representing Michael Pardue. David Barnett, who had represented Michael in a previous misdemeanor case, had been called by Michael's grandma. He comes to the station. Police refuse to allow him access to Michael. So then Chris Stannard comes and he instructed the officers that they were not to question Michael without him present. And they also tell him to pound sand. By 8.30 p.m. on May 23rd, Michael had given his first statement. So police had first read Michael his Miranda rights 30 hours after he gets there. Now, some of this is going to sound conflicting because of the write-ups on this. My assumption is they read him as Miranda rights sometime on May 24th because they've held him the whole day, May 23rd. Right. And I'm not really sure what the confusion is. Uh, probably none. It's probably just a, it's just a tactic, but um, there should be absolutely no communication with police. Um, if you haven't been read your Miranda. Correct. I'm just saying like it, because you're right. Having had him in confinement for 30 hours, right. Uh, there's no telling where he was at mentally. Not in a good place. He came in to tell him that he stole some cards and to explain himself. Well, and that's where everything just went wrong. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying, like, don't cock the police without an attorney. It's well, terrible. So, all right. The first statement that Michael Perdue has officially on the record, it has him confessing to the killing of 20-year-old Ronald Wright. He's the first person that's killed in this string of events. On May 25th, Michael gives a second statement. And at this point, he admits that he killed 
Hodges and White. So Harvey Hodges, the 68-year-old, and Theodore White, the 43-year-old, whose skeletonized remains were found. So Michael has just confessed to a trio of murders. Hodges' cause of death was listed as two shotgun blasts. White's cause of death is listed as undetermined. On May 29, 1973, they dragged Teresa into this. This is the 16-year-old girl. She gets charged with murder after she gives a statement. She later said that she only gave a statement because they were threatening her with the death penalty. In her statement, Teresa says that John Brown had killed Ronald Ryder. On May 30th, 1973, John Brown is charged with murder after local police there say that he confessed to killing Ronald Ryder. John Brown would later assert that he had been interrogated over four days and he had been beaten badly enough to require medical attention. John also signs a confession. But what the police didn't know in the moments that he was signing it were that John Brown was illiterate and he couldn't read. The statements of Michael Perdue, Teresa Lanier, and John Brown make no sense. They're all contradictory. And Michael later says that he didn't commit the crimes, but the police were giving him enough details for his confession. So he was basically giving them the statement they wanted and they just didn't realize that it wasn't going to make any sense when they then tried to do the same thing with this 16-year-old girl and his 21-year-old 20, in Teresa Lanier and John Brown. So all three of them are charged with Ronald Ryder's murder in Baldwin County. Michael Perdue is separately charged in Mobile County with the murders of Mr. Hodges and Mr. White. He also ends up charged with grand larceny in both of the cases involving gas stations. That's Ron Ryder and Herbert Hodges' cases. On August 14, 1973, Michael Pardue goes on trial at Baldwin County Circuit Court. This is for the Ronald Ryder murder. His entire trial, including opening and closing statements, lasted 110 minutes. So I want you guys to think about that. You've now been listening to a podcast that was longer than a murder trial. Just today, the one episode. Teresa ends up testifying on behalf of the prosecution after she gets sort of tricked into a deal to cooperate in return for being allowed to plead guilty as a youthful offender to a manslaughter charge. And back then, a youthful offender meant there are certain things that could happen with that charge where it could even go away. The prosecution also presented an abbreviated summary of Michael's confession and a 410 shotgun, which that's what they claimed to be the murder weapon. Nelson Grubb was a state toxicologist, and he came in to testify that he had performed an autopsy on Ryder. He initially listed the cause of death as a blow from a crowbar. But he later changed this and testified that the cause of death was a gunshot wound to his brain. 
Nelson Grubb revived his opinion on the cause of death after Michael confessed that he was holding a sawed-off double-barreled 410 shotgun when Ron Ryder turned and raised the crowbar. In Michael produced confession, Michael said that he panicked, he dropped the shotgun, and it went off and killed Ryder. Alternatively, he said that he left the gun in a field, tossed it into a pond, and finally said that it was at some family member's home. So police had found this weapon in the closet of a family member, covered in cobwebs and rust. In fact, in order to test fire this weapon, police had to clean it with heavy solvent. So this is the gun that they present to the jury in this 110-minute trial as the murder weapon. Nelson Grubb also testifies he examined the gun and a rag that was found in Michael Pardue's car, as well as fibers in the shotgun. So Nelson says that the rag has powder burned and that the rag consisted of the same fibers as the fibers found on the shotgun. He also testified that fibers found on the mat of the car that Michael was driving were exactly the same as fibers found on the gun. And it's that word exactly that becomes a problem because you and I've talked about this. It's never exactly. It's, it's usually in this level of probability. Right. And it's always uh, just about always going to be subjective. Yeah. So Nelson also testified that dirt and bits of clamshell that had been removed from around the service station where Ronald Ryder was killed were similar to dirt and clamshell bits in Michael Perdue's car. And then he testified that an imprint of the rag found in the automobile was the same as the shape of the sawed-off portion of the gun barrel. He said the gun had been well-oiled and greased, and the same kind of grease on the gun was on the rag, which is just a lie. And then he testified that there were no fingerprints on the gun. He said that although no dirt or shell bits were found on Michael's clothing or shoes, the items had not been examined until June the 7th, and by that time, for some reason, they had been cleaned. So Pardue's attorney is one of the guys that came to see him, Chris Stannard. He had recently practiced law as a prosecutor, but he neglected to call key witnesses, including the family member who owned the shotgun, and he did not object to the introduction of the shotgun into evidence. And he did not cross-examine Grubb about the fact that Grubb, Nelson Grubb, testifying about all these forensic things, did not have a medical license. On August 14th, 1973, so the exact same day that the 110-minute trial takes place, the jury convicts Michael of Ronald Ryder's murder. He gets sentenced to life in prison. In a separate trial, not long after this, John Brown is also convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to life in prison. Now, on October 24th, 1973, Michael Pardue appears in Mobile County Circuit Court. There, he pled guilty to the murders of Hodges and White in Mobile County. Before he pled guilty, Michael was told by Assistant District Attorney Charlie Graddick that Pardue would get a sentence of death by electrocution if he did not plead guilty. However, at the time, capital punishment had been stayed by the U.S. Supreme Court, so technically capital punishment was illegal when this was happening. Stannard failed to inform Michael that Graddock's representation was false. 
So Michael was sentenced to two more sentences of life in prison, but this time to be served consecutively. So Michael files an appeal five days later on October 29th, 1973, which for some reason, Chris Stannard just withdraws it without Michael's knowledge or consent. Years later, Stannard would be characterized by a federal judge as grossly ineffective and probably worse than no representation at all. In the summer of 1977, four years later, Michael Perdue escapes from a corrections facility near Montgomery, but he gets caught three days later by authorities. And then on July 20th of 1978, Michael Perdue fakes appendicitis and flees from the hospital that he'd been taken to for surgery. He gets rearrested a week later. After this escape, he ends up being charged and convicted of robbery, and he pleads guilty. In March of 1987, so 10 years later, Michael Perdue is on horseback on a work detail when he just decided to ride off on the horse. He came to a vacant house, which happened to be the home of a deputy warden. He broke in. He took a 357 Magnum revolver and the keys to the deputy warden's gold Corvette. Michael Perdue trades this gun for a tank of gas. And he gets caught a few days later at the home of a family member. He's then convicted of escape, burglary, and two counts of theft. On September 2nd, 1994, the Supreme Court of Alabama reverses the murder conviction for Michael Perdue in the homicide of Ron Ryder on the grounds that holding Michael for 30 hours before being administered his Miranda rights was grounds for it to be overturned. So he's interrogated for 30 hours, then he gets his Miranda rights, and the court basically says, we're overturning this conviction. Not only are we overturning this conviction, we're also ordering that statement to be suppressed. And then just a few months later, on December 16th of 1994, the United States District Court for the Southern District of Alabama has before it a federal petition for a writ of habeas corpus on which they rule and overturn Michael Pardue's convictions related to the murders of Herbert Hodges and Theodore White. The Federal court ruled that Michael had not been advised of his right to request being prosecuted as a youthful offender. In 1995, Michael Perdue is reindicted for the murder of Hodges. He was prosecuted as an adult after his request to be prosecuted as a youthful offender was denied. Prior to trial, Michael's attorneys moved to suppress his May 25th, 1973 statement claiming it was involuntary due to physical abuse, the failure to read him his Miranda rights, and the denial of a lawyer. This motion was denied by the court. So he goes on trial again in March of 1995. So we're now 22 years later, and he's in Mobile County Circuit Court. The prosecution present portions of the original confession tapes. These tapes had not been used at the 1973 trial, and they had not been disclosed until just before the second trial begins. 
Six months before the trial, a judge had ordered the prosecution to hand over all the files pertaining to the case, including these tapes. The state first said that the tapes no longer existed, and then they revealed that the tapes did in fact exist just prior to trial. In Michael's defense, a clinical psychologist testified that Michael had symptoms of a mental disorder resulting from years of physical abuse by his father. At age four, his father had broken his arm in two places. The psychologist also said that Michael had suffered emotional trauma from witnessing his mother's violent death. The expert testified that a lack of access to family members or an attorney would have significantly compromised Michael's ability to represent himself effectively. In March of 1995, Michael is convicted of Herbert Hodges' murder and grand larceny, and he's sentenced to 100 years minus 22 years served. On May 9th of 1995, the Mobile County District Attorney's Office dismissed the charges in the White case. Okay. You follow me here? Yep. This is like so much legal shenanigans going on. Years later, exculpatory evidence was found, which had not been introduced at trial, including alibi testimony and forensic photographs. Prior to the 1995 trial, prosecutors had obtained a taped statement from an alibi witness stating that Michael Pardue had been with the witness at the time of the murders in 1973. The prosecution also had photographs from the Hodges crime scene showing that Hodges had only been shot once, which is a, that was a contradiction of Michael's statement on May 25th, 1973, that Hodges had been shot with both barrels of the shotgun. In addition, independent forensic analysis concluded that the shotgun presented at trial could not have been the gun that killed Harvey Hodges based on the bullet wound. By then, Teresa Lanier and John Brown had recanted all statements implicating Michael Pardue. So on August 23rd, 1996, the Court of Criminal Appeals of Alabama reversed the conviction for the Hodges murder, finding that Pardue's confession was involuntary and should never have been admitted by the court. On June 25th, 1997, the Mobile County District Attorney's Office dismissed the Hodges case. On August 29, 1997, the Baldwin County District Attorney's Office dismissed the Ron Ryder murder case. Despite the dismissal of the three murder cases, Michael Pardue remained in prison with a sentence of life without parole. The sentence had been imposed under the state's habitual offender statutes based on his convictions for three prison escapes. Guy can't catch a break. I mean, honestly. I have heard of bad luck happening in legal scenarios. This whole thing is absolutely wild. It is. And while there is a lot happening um, and there's a lot that goes on, like pretty much from the word go, I would say that at his 110 minute trial, uh, when the toxicologist that performed the autopsy adjusted uh, the cause of death based on what had been stated by the defendant, uh, it should have screamed reasonable doubt to everyone. Well, the judge to start with, let alone the jury. Well, and I I don't know about the judge. I mean, I feel like they should have, but I don't understand how like uh, just normal people that, you know, they just, 
they don't, they're not like legal minds at work or anything, but you are listening and you hear this, like it would send a flag off for me that like, oh yeah, well, you know, I thought he got smashed in the head, but that wasn't the case because the defendant said he shot him. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know how you get to this whole changing testimony thing and everyone just thinks it's okay. Well, I, I'm telling you that I don't know what it is, but the mindset of like the people sitting there, it's almost like instead of the state presenting um, the case of guilt, the defense has got to present like almost prove innocence. And I know that that's not what's supposed to happen, but when you're sitting there, like I think most of the people on the jury are just waiting to see like, okay, so how did he not do it? Right. I, I Yeah. Like they're looking at it and they're, well, you know, there's a lot of air of authority here, which in and of itself is a logical fallacy. So, so a logical fallacy in this case would have probably been better in terms of outcome. Like I can't imagine this is so all of this takes place while this kid is 17 years old. And I understand that they're going on about, because we just talked about the fact that they go on about him not being able to represent himself, you know, effectively in terms of these confessions and, and how he's talking to everyone this kid is 17 years old and right. he gets a 110 minute murder trial. Right. And while he was being interrogated, uh, he was held uh, while two attorneys attempted to, uh, you know, get in to talk with him and the police didn't allow it. Like all of these should have been red flags for the jury. Yeah. And yeah. And I just, I can't help but think though, the judge here bears a, Big piece of responsibility. I I can't I can't really speak uh, to the role there. I mean, yeah, obviously, right? Uh, but I feel like you know, normal people listening would completely understand that. Like, if you're sitting there and like stuff isn't adding up, it mean it doesn't mean the defendant's guilty, right? It means that the prosecution has not proven their case. I feel like they, that it was switched almost. That's, it it does that's, feel that way. I think you're 100% right. It feels that's that That's the only way that they could get to that outcome, right? Yeah. The, the, basically, the defendant didn't prove they were innocent, so we got we to gotta go with this. So this guy's doing life in prison, uh, mid-90s. So on June 25th, 1999, Michael Pardue files a federal civil rights lawsuit against Mobile County, and many of the officials are individually named who contributed to all these shenanigans here and these wrongful convictions, which are way worse than shenanigans. During the proceedings for this, Michael's lawyer is a guy named James Curington Jr. He learned that several boxes of documents from the, the several boxes of documents from the case which the prosecution had declared had been destroyed during Hurricane Frederick in 1979, were not destroyed. They still existed. 
and the prosecution had them in their possession. In these boxes, James Curenton manages to find evidence of a witness who reported finding Ron Ryder's body in the gas station, who saw two men leave the station as this witness approached. Curenton said he found a report saying that shoe prints were found in the mud outside the station, and they were identified as being made by shoes that at that time were issued by the Alabama Department of Corrections. He was able to find records that showed that not long before Ronald Ryder had been shot, two men had walked off a prison farm in Fountain, Alabama which would have been about 55 miles to the north and the west of Mobile. He also found a business card of a witness who had seen two men leaving the station right after Herbert Hodges in the second crime were fatally shot. The witness had written down a description of the car and the license plate number. The number had been traced to a car that had been stolen. Years later, Curenton said they knew that Michael Perdue did not commit these murders. There were two escaped convicts who committed these shootings, but they framed Michael Perdue instead. In 2000, the Supreme Court of Alabama rules that Michael's guilty plea pertaining to the second escape conviction had been improperly accepted by the court And on a technicality, they vacated his conviction and therefore his sentence. The trial court then re-sentenced Michael for the remaining escape charges, and this allowed Michael to be released on parole. So this kid who never should have been in prison in the first place, who escaped from prison, is now on parole, even though the charges that got him there to begin with are all gone. I feel like that needed deeper um, legal work that just didn't happen. Yeah, I think the idea was this kid was already on probation for for stealing things. And... Well, no, um, I feel like... Uh, well, yeah, you're right. But so much time had passed. Essentially, he, he was left in prison because he had pled guilty to escaping while he was in prison for the murder charges. Right. Yeah. And obviously common sense says that when you are in a position where you've been wrongfully imprisoned and you escape an overturning of your conviction would nullify the escape conviction right that's logical it's not legal right that's not the legal argument however i feel like if an attorney had come along they probably could have gone deeper and gotten somebody to agree with that because like i said it's logical right yeah there's absolutely no indication that this child, which he's an adult at this point, but at the time of the incident that that child had anything to do with these murders, right? In fact, there's a lot of really good evidence of who did it. 
Yeah, I see what you're saying. I thought you meant a legal argument for what happened to him, but you're saying for the stuff that they do related to the escapes, you probably could make a finding with a wrongful conviction that it was unlawful confinement, therefore it negated the escape attempts and the escapes. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I I don't know what the argument exactly would be. It's not an automatic thing, which it almost seems like it should be like, duh. Right. Um, But it not being an automatic thing, he needed for what he didn't have a good attorney to start with. Right. He had a, bad attorney now it seems like it got better in the 90s right i think maybe 2000 but um it you basically you would have to get an appeals court possibly the supreme court uh to go along with the legal argument that having been wrongfully convicted to begin with that uh his escape convictions for escaping while wrongfully convicted had to be vacated as well. And therefore he did it it a little bit, like, because they said his second, um, I mean, they got him out of jail and it was almost like they, so when I see things like that happening, I see a court, um, I believe that was the Alabama Supreme Court, too. Uh, I see a court saying, we see that there's a problem here. And so we're going to do this technicality and we're going to sort of make it right. Okay. But none of the Supreme Court justices, uh, the Alabama Supreme Court justices at that point in time, were um, driven enough. I I don't know that that's the right word, but like uh, they didn't feel... Uh, motivated enough to actually say like the logical thing that should happen. Right. And so, because, you know, as soon as they say that, that sets a precedent. Right. And the precedent would be that like in the event that you have a conviction while you have been, you know, you're being held wrong, you're being held in jail or in prison but you've been wrongly convicted, right? Yeah. Think of all the things that overturns, right? And the Supreme Court saying that, it would be a big deal. I would say that like a lower court could probably do it and maybe it would stand up if the state appealed it, right? But logically here, the 17-year-old kid, he suffers over and over and over again and it doesn't get rectified. Like he, he basically eventually gets out, but he still got this hanging over his head. Yeah. it. Uh, this whole case is one of the most interesting and infuriating legal morasses I've ever laid my hands on. If you want to, uh, if you just have nothing to do for the next week between now and Christmas and you're all alone and you want to feel better about yourself, honest to God, look up Michael Perdue's court documents. It is a wild ride and you will feel so much better about wherever you are in your life reading this because it like, this is as bad as it can possibly get. Now on February 15th of 2001, Michael Perdue was released from prison. He had been in there for 27 years and nine months. 
In April of 2010, nine years later, the city of Saraland, Alabama, finally agrees to a settlement related to what's happened to him. That amount is never disclosed that I find in all my hunting here. But essentially, when Michael goes in February of 2003 to file a claim for compensation under Alabama's Wrongful Conviction Act, this claim fails. So he doesn't get compensation for how long he's been in there. So Michael gets married. Michael Pardue gets married to Becky Pardue. And they end up co-authoring a book concerning wrongful convictions, basically said freeing the innocent, how we did it, a handbook for the wrongly convicted. That's the title. His case was a subject of a couple of different books that have been published around the world. One is in France as uh, Justice to the Absurd. Uh, it's by a French lawyer who just could not understand how it could all happen. And ultimately, none of the police or the prosecuting attorneys in here end up sanctioned for their conduct, specifically in this case. But some of them do end up getting called out later for their nonsense. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, who was the prosecutor in the 1973 original Baldwin County trial, he later gets convicted of drug smuggling and goes to prison. Bobby Stewart, he's the first investigator that is involved in essentially what is the torture of Michael Pardue. He gets in prison for drug smuggling and providing protection to a drug operation. William Travis, he's the Mobile County chief investigator when all this is going on. He gets dismissed from the sheriff's department due to allegations of brutality and corruption. Uh, Willis Holloway, and he, he, this is the guy that was the Mobile County ADA back then, he was present for the second statement that was a problem related to Theodore White's murder and Herbert Hodge's murder. He ends up being convicted convicted of jury tampering, bribery, and extortion, and he gets a long sentence in prison. I think it's 20 years or so. However, uh, this does not have a happy ending. Not really. In May of 2011, Michael gets arrested for possessing a firearm. His parole is revoked, and he gets sent back to prison. He appeals it, and he is released, but he then turns around and 2017 and he gets a burglary conviction and he's sentenced to two years in a rehabilitation center in Anniston, Alabama. He successfully graduates this program um, that a judge felt like he would do well in because the, uh, the judge in that case that was sentencing him in the burglary case basically attributed his actions to a lack of treatment, a lack of resources and um, to problems related to Michael's struggle with alcoholism. But Michael does successfully complete this program. Unfortunately, on February 15, 2019, Michael died of a heart attack three days after his 63rd birthday. I don't know if that was unfortunate or not, because I, I feel like in a way, like he was being put out of his misery yeah, I mean, we could probably say that a little better way, but you're right. Ultimately, I'm not. I'm just saying, like, that was hellacious. Um, 
especially since it started, you know, at the very beginning, he's 17 years old and uh, his dad kills his mom right in front of him and his siblings, right? That's how this this story sort of begins. Uh, I, I do realize that in, you know, by May of 2011, when his parole is revoked, uh, it's not entirely clear what he's on parole for, but I have a feeling it he probably shouldn't have been on parole. The sort of nuisance type behavior that I, I don't know what was entailed with these charges that happened later in his life, but uh, having spent 27 years and nine months incarcerated for three murders you didn't commit... Uh, it might make you a little obstinate towards the law, right? Yeah. It also might um, make you drink and make you um, unable to function in life, right? So the damage is done, right? Uh, and so how much is it, you know, to blame? Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't really know what the solution here is. But I do know from the very beginning, uh, this guy lived in pure misery. And it was... I don't feel like it was through any making of his own. I mean, he wanted to go turn himself in for the grand theft or whatever it was initially he wanted to turn himself in for. It wasn't the murder, right? No, he was, he came in to clear up the car problem. Right. And so, you know, if that hadn't happened that day, I mean, he wouldn't have come on their radar because. Well, he was he was on their radar. He just didn't know why they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to talk to him because he was on probation and he was nearby. Yeah, that's I mean, that's it. That's the only reason he heard that. He knew that they had come knocking and and looking for like the people in that area. And once that happened, he went and I I figure honestly, there's a strong possibility that John Brown. Teresa Lanier and Michael Purdue were up to no good, but not the same kind of up to no good as murder. Like whatever they're doing in that motel, they're not necessarily criminals, um, but they may have been doing whatever and, and they didn't want to draw further attention to themselves. So Michael goes in, he's just going to explain that he needed a tire for his car and he was going to put everything back the way he found it. That's what he's going to say to them. And then they say, Man, you've been out killing people all night. Well, right. And I mean, his entire world. I mean, but, you know, that's a very 17-year-old kid sort of perspective on things, right? Yeah. Like, I'm just going to explain it. It'll be fine, right? <laughs> and it's not fine. It wouldn't have been fine to begin with. And But it's also not murder, right? Uh, it's two very different things that you're talking about there. And... I feel like it was a huge jump to begin with to even think like, oh, yeah, let's nail this kid for this, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, I mean, he, he took a truck, yes, he was going to steal it. I, I, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it does seem like a very childlike approach to resolving a situation that you found yourself in, right? Yeah. And knowing that that's how he started that, and then he sits there for all that time, and he's denied counsel, he's denied access to his grandmother, he's 
you know, basically browbeaten and possibly actually beaten. And then like, you know, you know, he's being like psychologically traumatized at the same time. Right. And like, that's where this all starts. Knowing he had that kid perspective, like, I'm just going to clear this up real quick so I can get on with my life. And of course that didn't happen. This is one of the absolutely most heartbreaking cases I've ever read. Especially, um, you know, 17-year-olds are children, right? Yeah. And children. Uh, huh? They're definitely children. Yeah, and I feel like that gets really overlooked here. And I would say that I, it doesn't say anything about whether, like, they ever actually were like, oh, these convicts did it, right? Because there's a lot of evidence pointing to elements of the initial murders that point to somebody like this the vehicle being stolen right and all that other stuff and it doesn't say anything here in uh the summary of his exon or his acquittal or exoneration i guess it doesn't say whether that was pursued or not but i have a feeling it probably wasn't no i wouldn't so where i stumbled across this guy was i was looking at the case of uh casey white do you remember casey white who escaped from prison down there with Alan. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was looking there and I, I, while I was trying to research that, some of the stuff crossed in terms of the different murders. I don't find anywhere in here what happened in the murders of uh, the first two folks. And I don't actually see, and this sounds a little strange, but in terms of my hunting for... The third one, it doesn't even appear to have ever been a murder case. Like Theodore Roosevelt White does not well, right, appear. Right, because he was a skeletonized remain, unidentified remains when he was found. Like he wasn't even relevant to the shootings. Right. And so it didn't even make sense really um, if they'd gone back far enough like there was probably no correlation. Yeah. I, you know, in terms of, uh, trying to hunt down sort of everything related to what the follow-up would have been like, it's like, there are, there are family members and I don't want to go deep into this. There are family members that still think it's him and he just got off. In terms of the Hodges family and the... Right? Uh, well, and, you know, I I feel like that's a um, big hole that's not going to be addressed, like, in, this, in the justice system. Uh, I am confident in saying Michael Pardue didn't do any of those murders. Um, I'm not going to, like, fuss about the other crimes or whatever because those are the most serious. However, I question... Having said everything we just said, including the fact that, like, you know, he is ultimately exonerated, if not on parole, right? <laughs> um, his convictions are overturned. Uh, we have to dig pretty deep to kind of understand what's happening there. It doesn't scream innocence, right? Yeah. Uh, because of all the, the the different things involved, like, you know, for example, the, the third time... Uh, 
felony rule that ended up having him continue to be in prison even though all of his murder convictions were overturned. If you don't know what that is, what's happening there, it's very confusing, right? Yeah. Well, the murder convictions are overturned, but he's still sitting there in jail, right? And so that leads to some, like, it leads to confusion for families, right? And especially families that have lost somebody. And having known that... They went to the extremes that they did at the time that they um, had this kid and they were interrogating him and they were getting ready for his 110-minute trial, right? And and knowing all that happened and the fallout and the fact that, like, none of these victims ever got justice. What were these investigators doing? I have no idea what they were doing. And, you know, you and I have looked at a bunch of stuff recently that probably will come up as the new year rolls along where I sometimes wonder how police become police. Like individuals, I just look at what they're doing. Doesn't it it seem like they've lost touch, though, with like... Or never had it? Well, I would like to think everybody has it to begin with. And then like after you get told a certain number of times by your boss to complete your job, that you just go off into la-la land maybe. I, I don't know how they get there. They may not have ever had any good intention to begin with. I just don't see how like anything that's been demonstrated here like made those guys go home afterwards and be like, yeah, I serve justice today. Yeah. Because nothing about it would indicate that. And that's really concerning to me because it it's a it, – the power struggle there is real, right? Cause oh, yeah. I mean, because you're talking about basically, well, they're criminals. I mean, you named off all the different officials that ended up in jail later, right? Yep. Um, so they're criminals, but like – they're also sort of morons, right? And so you've got morons with the authority to work together to put, you know, for all intents and purposes, as far as the violent uh, crimes of murder here, an innocent child in jail. And they all work together in tandem to do that. And then the justice system, you know, continued to flush him down the toilet repeatedly because of all the ins and outs that couldn't, that he didn't have counsel that was like inept enough to address. Right. I mean, they just, they never got to, to getting it all straightened out and that actually happens. Right. And I just have a really hard time with the origin story of this where, I mean, really that that's where they went with it. And I can't figure out what they were telling themselves, especially once the information that appeared to be there the whole time was that, you know, it was these other guys that had walked off the prison farm. Everybody, I mean, at that point, no matter how deep you were, wouldn't you have just said, oh my, we need to fix this. And so what what leads them to not do that? I, I don't understand it. I have no idea. Like I Like I said, I have no idea how some of these people get to be in the jobs they're in. The military didn't let them in. I don't know. Like, 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 how did they end up in? in and it's not it, it, just the cops either. It's some of the lawyers too. Well, sure. And like, I, I would like to think that if I were in any of these roles, right, and I found out like, oh, 
this is what you were part of, right? I would be like, oh my goodness, I really don't ever need to be in this type of job again. I'm really bad at my job, right? Yeah. Like, because how do, how do you even like accidentally allow something like that to happen, right? Uh, there, a lot of this is definitely not an accident, just to clarify. I know that, but I'm saying like, even if I was a moron and I didn't do any of this on purpose, once I saw the outcome, I would say like, none of us need to have this career anymore. We're not good at this. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Now let's all go have eggnog. (laughs) So depressing. This is like... yeah, it is. I, you know, it, well, some of these have been very uplifting. Some of these are not. I am glad that, like, to some degree, that a lot of them got straightened out. Although, I, you know, I and I hate to dismiss the human element of all of this because I know that, like, there's a strong human condition argument to be made for what's happening in many, many of the cases that we just covered. Because, first of all, that was a lot of cases and a lot of missing people that we covered in a very short period of time. But when it comes to the exoneration cases, I find myself like looking at these cases and going, okay, so that went on for four years. And at this hourly rate, the state spent this much money, the defense spent this much money, and I start to make myself crazy. Right. And 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 a lot of it's unnecessary, at least in my opinion. Um, Did we have a single case where the ultimate, uh, the initial... Uh, victim that justice was being sought for after the defendant was exonerated. Did any case get resolved that you can remember? Um, in terms of someone else being convicted? Yes. There was maybe one or two, but remember I stayed away from the DNA cases because those are the popular ones. Well, well I'm just talking about a, the ones that we talked about. I can't remember a certain percentage. one. Percentage. It's pro- it might be zero for the ones that make the air. I can't remember any that. And so that was kind of my point there. And I also feel like we've demonstrated how an exoneration is not an exoneration is not an exoneration, right? Like sometimes you get these exonerations on technicalities. Sometimes you get exonerations based on actual innocence. Sometimes you get exonerations where the victim's family still believes the person did it, right? Um well, I don't think these kids had anything to do with it. I don't think I said that. I, I was listening to you earlier say that, and I realized I didn't chime in. There's no way that Michael Pardue. No, he didn't have anything to do with this. Right. In fact, it was it was without question the two inmates who had walked off the prison farm. Um, now, that's with regard to um, Harvey Hodges and Ronald Ryder. I don't know what happened to... Um, Theodore White. Unfor- uh, unfortunately, his name is so common in that area, and it has so many famous things attached to it in archival history. Because his name is Theodore Roosevelt White, right? And so, yeah, that brings up a lot. But like, he, he was uh, he was the skeletonized remains that happened to be found um, close by to the gas station where uh, Ronald Ryder was shot. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was the. It was just the proximity. That was it. Uh, there was no other connection made. Clearly, somebody who is skeletonized has been there for a little bit. Been there for a minute. Oh. 
and they lumped it all together. That's another thing. Like, I don't understand how the jury, like, just was like, okay, maybe he was 13 when he killed him, right? Well, this is how we get the plea deals because that's your jury. That's what that that's that's your jury that you're expecting. So, what's that? The people that would convict <laughs> based on the circumstances we just described in this case, yeah, being your potential jury, yeah, that is scary ground. Well, it is so scary. This actually should have been the Halloween episode because this um, is way scarier. Well, the, the the toxicologist doing the autopsy uh, and changing the manner, uh, the cause of death from blunt force trauma to the head to a gunshot wound to the head, uh, that is reasonable doubt no matter who is sitting on. I can't see how you could say, like, no, that's not reasonable doubt. No matter who you are, like you can't say that the fact that like they got because I mean, are we sure that it was a gunshot wound and not blunt force trauma? I mean, could it possibly have been strangulation or perhaps he got shot in the head with an arrow? Like, I mean, it could be anything. They've already presented us a crowbar. I know that. And so having changed it to match the defendant's testimony, uh, I'm sorry, the defendant's confession, right? Yeah, it should make the jury say, "Well, it doesn't seem like they know what they're doing here, right?" At the very least, because they've got to prove their case, right? And so it's not a situation where, like, "Oh, it's okay, he just made a mistake." Like any person who gets up on the stand, whether they're a doctor or not, this was a toxicologist. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we could wonder about that, right? Like, why is the toxicologist doing an autopsy? But, I mean, he should be very firm in his opinion of the cause of death before he gets on the stand. And uh, a a deviation from what he originally states is the state's bad, right? It shouldn't be taken out on the defendant. In fact, it should be used against the state in favor of the defendant. Yeah. Because if he's confessed that he shot the man and he was killed uh, with blunt force trauma, clearly he didn't do it, right? Somehow they didn't figure this out, but yeah. I'm I'm just saying in the world of this complicated, like, back and forth legal drama, like, that's one of the very first things that occurs that could have put an end to all this, right? Oh, you're 100% right, yeah. And it's one of the easiest things for me to say, because sometimes I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's reasonable doubt. And nobody else seems to real seems to feel the same way. Right. And but I feel like don't you feel like there's certain things that like there's no way around reasonable doubt? Um, You would in a in a perfect world. Yes. I think there's no way around reasonable doubt in certain circumstances. Well, like, like in this where, you know, they're not really sure how the guy died. Right. I don't, which, which one, the bones, because the bones alone. Well, so the ambiguity comes in the medical examiner having found he had, uh, I believe it was Ronald Ryder. 
I could be wrong. Donald Ryder's the first Baldwin County prosecution. He's separate. And then Hodges and White are a dual prosecution. And so it, uh, the indication was that the toxicologist had found he died from blunt force trauma, right? But um, during his confession, Michael Pardue said, I shot him twice, I think. I'm not really sure. Yeah, he he says he shot him twice. The guy was appeared to have been shot once. Talking about Hodges. Oh, that's the other guy. Okay. But then, so um, that leaves Ronald Ryder. And so Ronald Ryder was initially thought to have um, been hit in the head. With a crowbar. Yeah. He's with a crowbar. Okay. But uh, Michael Pardue indicates that he shot him in the head. Yeah. Okay. Well, if uh, Ronald Ryder... His cause of death is a crowbar to the head, and the defendant says that he shot him in the head. That's the very first clue that there's an issue. Changing of opinions there, like, that is deadly to any case. If the defense expert did it, it should be deadly. The prosecution expert doing it, it should be, it should kill the case. The fact that it doesn't means the jury's not paying attention. That's what I think. I, I feel like that's exactly. And so all the confusion and chaos that ensues afterwards, like it was unnecessary because right there, like any jury should say, well, wait, that doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. How could he confess to shooting the guy? He got hit in the head with a crowbar. All right. Well, I hope everybody has a nice holiday. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 Five five nine three. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.